You're listening to the Changemakers podcast, brought to you by the Thomson Reuters legal team in Australia and emerging markets. Changemakers is a global Thomson Reuters initiative that brings together industry leaders committed to improving diversity in the legal profession. My name is Catherine Roberts, and I'm a global strategic client director with Thomson Reuters Legal. In this episode, we are exploring the role of male champions in achieving gender equality in the legal profession. Today, we'll be talking to a male champion of change, Andrew Stewart. Andrew leads Baker and McKenzie's Australian Intellectual Property and Technology Practice Group, as well as the firm's global digital media and content practice. He is also a member of the firm's Asia-Pacific Intellectual Property and Technology Steering Committee. Andrew has significant in-house experience in one of Australia's most successful television networks, giving him a real insight into the media environment in Australia. Andrew is also an advisory board member of the Melbourne University Centre for Media and Communications in the Law. Andrew is an active supporter of gender equality and involved in the Male Agents of Change program. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Catherine. Andrew, let's start the program by exploring how your firm, Baker and McKenzie, has approached the issue of gender equality. Sure. We've approached it in a couple of ways. Probably from my perspective, the most significant was our Male Agents of Change program we started in 2016. We put together a group of 14 men from various levels across the firm and constituted a Male Agents of Change committee and undertook a process of education and consultation. And we also involved a woman by the name of Robin Chalmers, who was ex-Malice and Stephen Jakes and a, a chair of that firm to sort of help us. And there was a process of reading, a process of talking, but also probably most importantly, a process of listening to the women in uh, the Sydney office of Baker McKenzie, talking to them about the experiences that they'd had and trying to get more of an insight, I guess, to the issues that I think that we as a group of men probably had different levels of understanding, but none of us were perfect. So there was a lot of eye-opening that went on through that consultation process and probably that was the most valuable part of the program, I thought at least. Once we'd done or gone through that process, we then drafted a report which was provided to the management of the firm and we had, I think it was about 150 recommendations. Some of those were structural, some of those were about pay transparency, some were about work flexibility, some were about cultural issues somewhere about straight-up partner behaviour. But then there was also another component which was about we'd realised and had been criticised by some of the women in the firm, we'd put together a bunch of men to try and, open quotes, solve women's problems. Now, that wasn't the idea, but I think it was a valid criticism. So part of the recommendations that I was involved in drafting were around, I guess, trying to address that risk that we'd done the opposite of what we set out to do. We'd created another forum for men, particularly junior men, to interact with senior men and sort of continued the problem. So, yeah, it was a really interesting process. I I sort of regard myself as up the reasonably good end of the spectrum, but still there's an enormous amount you don't know if you're not from a particular group, which is not a dominant group. And what were those eye-opening parts for you? I think that for me... Some of the sort of macro issues were kind of obvious, but it was more the the subtle experiences that women had in our firm. The slight put-downs when you're coming back from what we called it maternity leave then. We've now sort of progressed to call it parental leave. The perspectives of people about work allocation. Also, in some instances, it, it was that 
we as a, a management team weren't really communicating well enough with not only women but men also about things like pay transparency. We were doing an analysis of gender comparisons about pay to make sure that things were sort of reasonably balanced or if uh, there was an imbalance one way or the other, we understood why. But we weren't communicating that to the staff and and that was quite important too. But then also there were some of those macro issues about straight-up partner behaviour that quite often I think the problem is that it happens in circumstances that don't get reported and it's important to create a culture and an environment where women feel very safe to be able to report those things, that there won't be any blowback and that something will be done about it. And at that stage, what were your gender statistics like at the firm? To tell you the truth, not that different from where we are now. We've improved a little bit. So the statistics at the moment is across the firm we have 63% women, which yep. is quite high. But you compare that against the num- the percentage of female partners and it's only 20%. Right. We've made some progress on female partners. We've made probably more progress on the representation of women in management roles. Yep. But it's that partner thing that I think is a really key thing. And I think we've made a number of changes we can be proud of, but I don't think we can be proud of the straight-up numbers. That's something that really has to change and that's a real area of focus. And how important during that process with the male agents of change, how important was it that there was visible ownership of the issue at the upper end of the management structure? The program was led by our then managing partner, Chris Freeland, and some of the most senior partners were male agents of change. And I think that that was good in that it lent the program legitimacy. But really, the important part was probably once the program was completed, then what happened? And I'd say probably I'd give us a six out of 10 on progress. It's still going. But what's really important is you, if you undertake that process and you publicise it, and then you provide a forum for women to talk about their experiences and some of the problems they face, then you absolutely have to do something out of it. Yes. Once you get to the end. And if you don't, you're in a worse position than when you started. So there are a series of things we've made progress on and there is a series of things that are still on the to-do list. I'd love to explore with you first then what are the things, where are the, where has the progress be, been seen? At the sort of larger end of the, the, the macro end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. I think one of the really important things we've done is around our parental leave policies. Uh, a couple of years ago, around the time we did this, we were sort of complying essentially with the legislative obligations What we've moved to now and quite recently is 18 weeks paid leave for all employees who welcome a new child, regardless of gender. There's no requirement that they're a primary caregiver. They can take it up to two years after the birth of the child. So there's no requirement that the employee is a primary caregiver at the time and we also don't care if there's another parent at home. Very good. Originally, you'd have to be the primary caregiver and the other parent would have had to have returned to work. So we've removed those constraints. So it's much more flexible. Mm. It's offered for a longer period. It's open to everyone. And we're sort of exceeding quite highly the legal requirements. It's an inclusive parental policy. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the other things that became obvious as we went through the process was that a lot of these issues are really not... Some of them are gender. Mm. And some of the really important ones are very much gender-based. But there's some, like flexible work arrangements, flexible parental arrangements, which if you get them right, they can benefit everyone. And then the other thing too is if you can encourage men to take advantage of some of this flexibility, it removes that sort of shadow that 
lies over women who need to take some advantage of some of those policies. So it's because if a bunch of men are taking parental leave and then dealing with the sort of inevitable issues about coming back into the workforce, making sure that they get their practices back, making sure they get the additional support they need, then women, I think, see that it's a much more equal approach mm. by the organisation and it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman coming back. Now, I can't sit here and say we're at equal numbers of people taking advantage of that parental leave, but there are more and more examples of men who have taken it and we're getting our first group of men coming back and it's interesting to watch how they're sort of reintegrating into the workforce and how they're finding it. And I, and they're sharing the experience that usually women have gone through. So yep. that will probably also help in terms of creating further change for the firm. Yeah. I was going to say it legitimises taking gaps out of your career and then coming back. I mean, it was always legitimate, but it sort of – it just takes away that, as I said before, that shade that sort of gets cast over someone who's returning – and so parental policies are a great example of progress um, that you've achieved. Where do you now see uh, further work that needs to be done? Well, another one that we've just introduced is our targets for women and men. And Bakers Globally has adopted a 40-40-20 approach. And that's 40% women, 40% men, and then 20% is flexibly and intended to also cover non-binary persons. So that's a commitment we've made quite recently uh, globally. Uh, it applies to partners, senior business professionals, firm committee leadership and candidate pools for recruitment. And we've set date of 1 July 2025 to meet those targets. Now, in my view, that's an unfortunately long way away, mm. but we have to be realistic given where we are. So, so as of today, all candidate pools for external recruitment for either partners or senior business professionals have to meet those targets and then there are other levers that have been introduced by the firm to address the partner representation of women across the firm. I think that's a fantastic target and I think targets are really important because I think no matter how long you want to go back in history without targets, I think I know there's an, an enormous debate about targets but my mm. personal view is we have to have them because not having them hasn't worked yet. I agree completely. So in terms of targets, what happens if you don't achieve it? How do you really make sure that everyone is invested in that target in achieving it? You do it a few ways. So for leaders, you have to make achieving those targets part of their KPAs mm -hmm. and there have to be real consequences if they don't. There are mechanical things that you can do as well where if a particular office is not meeting their targets, then that may impact on their ability to elevate people to partnership and it will be a requirement in terms of recruitment per se. So for other roles as well, if people are not meeting the targets, well, questions will be asked before approval recruitment's given. Very good. So now that you're some years into the Male Agents of Change program, what are, what are your learnings? I think probably three things. Like I said at the beginning, you've got to make sure that when you undertake one of these programs, you're not just making the problem worse. So, for example, when we got to the end of this program and there was justifiable criticism that we just made the problem worse by creating this group of men who could network more than women with the senior partnership members. We then addressed that by making sure that there was an implementation committee that comprised of a group of people, in, but predominantly women, very senior levels. I think the other thing that I learned is, and I heard someone say this the other day, that only women can truly understand what women go through. 
And I think that that is true to some degree, but I also think that it's incumbent upon men to at least better understand, if not almost fully understand, what it is that women go through. And I think that the way that you get to that is through the power of stories. Like I said at the beginning, that listening process, the consultation process, was, I think, the thing that really made the men in the group sit back and think about how the firm operated, the lived experience of women in the firm. But also, and me included, it made me think about some of my perspectives and that I could see that thought through changes in the way that I was approaching issues. In particular, a good example was a particular partner was operating on a sort of less than full-time arrangement. And I sort of struggled with that at some points around this, the idea of this person progressing. Mm. But as I listened to those people and thought, I started to reanalyse that attitude and think, well, it's a personal choice. But also, what are they objectively contributing to the firm and if they're objectively contributing the same amount as a man who's working full-time well, that's the end of the story they should absolutely be progressed the same way that a man was so it was sort of reframing the way I was thinking around not about whether the person was working less than full-time it was about what's their contribution overall and I think that one of the 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 powers of stories is you can't get to a perfect understanding of the lived experience of women, but you can get a much better perspective. And I think that's one of the most powerful things out of all the processes we undertook. Definitely. And it's that creating that awareness in yourself, isn't it? And, and that understanding of the privilege yeah. that you're, you're in, essentially. Yeah. So taking a step back for a moment, so why do you think it's so important for men to prioritise issues of, of gender equality? I'm interested to think about how you position this with your peers. Number one is that until we don't need to have these podcasts, until we don't need to talk about gender equality, really this is an issue that men have to commit to working on because putting it that men are the problem is probably not quite the right way to look at it, but nonetheless men have still a dominant position and if we're going to change things, it's really the men who have got to change. Mm. So I think that's sort of at a fundamental level why it's critical that men engage with this issue. In terms of why individuals seek to, there was a lot that I learnt during the Male Agents of Change program, but I started from my sort of mentality is more, it's not why should women be equal. I start from the position of, well, everyone's equal. Mm. And even though I learnt that I had some inbuilt biases and sort of unconscious biases in the way I thought about things, nonetheless still that sort of express view was still there. Why other men might engage with it? Sometimes it'll be that they'll have this sort of fundamental belief in fairness generally. Other times it will be they have something changed in their lives that changes their perspective. One of the ways often that men talk about it is that when they have children, they have daughters who are growing up and going through the education system and then starting to work. They want a fair environment for their uh, children to, to be able to operate in. I struggle with that one personally a little mm -hmm. bit because to me it's so obvious it should be equal anyway. But it, that doesn't really matter. It's about how an individual engages it with the issue and decides that they want to contribute to a change. Mm. And the Male Champions of Change program talks about the success of a strategy that involves creating a head and a heart connection. I guess what you were talking about just then was that heart connection. Yeah. 
in terms of making that head connection for people, you know, that rational business case for change, how important do you think data is in promoting that sort of progress? Yeah, I think for some people, data is critical. Particularly in a profession like law, you have people who are wedded to analysis, wedded to data, and they require proof. And for those people, I think data is critical. But there are different kinds of data you can talk about. I think the gender pay gap analysis is incredibly important, but to me that tells you there's a problem. It doesn't prove that you've got to deal with it. Mm. I mean, to me it does because I just struggle with the concept that it should anything be other than equal. But there are some people who I think when they make decisions about where the firm ought to invest its time and resources, they do weigh things up in a different way than I might. Mm. And for those people, they need to get data that proves that if we have a diverse workplace uh, with diverse decision makers and leaders, then the outcome in a financial sense will be better. And There is that data around, but not a lot directly relating to law firms, at least as far as I'm aware yet. Mm. So I'd like to see us get much more data about that. I think a really great example of objective data that is coming down the pipe and in some ways is already here is a lot of the very large US organisations have gender commitments Mm. and when you're engaging with them as a professional service provider, they essentially say to you, tell us what your gender statistics look like because we're committed to improving the gender balance. We want to make sure that our professional service providers do as well. If you want to work for those organisations, you simply have to change. That certainly gets the attention of a lawyer. Yeah, and particularly when you're talking about some of the largest organisations on the globe with the largest legal wallets, Mm. that really will focus people's minds. And what about just data around the retention of good women at law firms and and that sort of talent aspect? Does that play a part? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the number of people who move on from law firms, including ours, there is an overly high representation of quite senior women And they go to various roles. They don't necessarily give up on the law or give up on working. And there's a direct cost to that and you can calculate that and we do. So if you want to talk about an opportunity cost of not addressing the problem, there it is in black and white. As really good, really experienced people walk out the door, we have to recruit replacements, we have to train replacements, but also you lose that capital knowledge, you lose aspects of the culture as different Mm -hmm. people leave but they also walk out with experience of your clients and business. And not that they're going to take that anywhere else, but that's a true loss. Absolutely. So in terms of um, the importance of flexible work, it's often attributed that that supports women in the workplace, a really great flexible work policy. But we do know that men and women both really benefit from flexible work. Men often cite that they are not made to feel comfortable about taking parental leave or or moving to part-time. How do we change this cultural aspect of flexible work? Yeah, I think there are kind of two primary ways. One is leadership, and that involves people in leadership positions taking advantage of the wrong word, but demonstrating that you can work flexibly, that you can work part-time when is necessary, and you can still succeed. So I think that that's part of it. The other part of it is over time, as more men take advantage of, say, our parental leave policy in return and succeed, I think that that will demonstrate that it works and that will encourage more men and women to take advantage of it. The other thing that you can do is to make sure that the leaders are held to account for ensuring that these 
policies in their practical lived experience work. So you do, do you spotlight when men have taken parental leave or how do you showcase it so that those men, that they're saying you can't be what you can't see, yeah. that those men are looking up to the other senior men in the firm actually taking that sort of policy seriously? Yeah, it sort of happens at different levels. It happens in practice groups and it happens at the, the firm level. You have to promote when men do it mm. in, and particularly senior men. So we've got one practice group leader who works from home one day a week. Mm-hmm. I have committed to work from home on a Friday one day per month. To be truthful, it's probably on it in the breach more, <laughs> which is shame on me, but I've publicised that that's what I'm intending to do, subject to work requirements. Very good. And then sort of firm events when we report back on how the firm's doing, you publicise how many people are how many men in particular and senior men are taking advantage of the flexible working arrangements. I think you mentioned to me previously that you felt that men have been taking advantage of flexible work for a long time now. Yep. It just hasn't been showcased as such. Yeah, that's, it's a great point and it's also a frustration of mine. I think that from my observation, particularly partners in law firms, they obviously work incredibly hard but I know that I act flexibly from time to time mm. on an informal basis and I watch my partners do that. And I've been watching them doing that for decades. Yep. So I think in some ways converting that informal behaviour into formal, acknowledged, approved and promoted behaviour mm. where the men involved are doing exactly the same thing is a powerful way of showing that um, we call it our Be Agile policy, that it works mm. and that people are committed to it. But there's also a funny thing where you speak to those men who do sort of have that informal flexibility, but then they have a problem with the person in the office next door not being there on a Thursday. (laughs) Yes. And so there's an education process you have to go through with them, and I've been through it myself as well, where you have to get people to recognise what they're doing is working flexibly. There is absolutely no issues with other doing. And Bakers, for example, we're a global firm the partners travel huge amounts and we've got some partners who I think spend more time on planes than in the office, but they get their work done. They satisfy their clients' requirements and they can be anywhere in the world Mm. and that demonstrates that it absolutely does work. So a place like Baker's absolutely should cope with flexible working. So on an individual scale, what are some of the ways you've been a male champion for gender equality? So in terms of the ways that I've sort of been a male champion of change, I mean, I guess, firstly, co-leading our program was one of the first ways and then being the primary author of the report. In terms of my day-to-day work, so supporting the women in our group, I'm, I'm really lucky to sort of stand on the shoulders of giants. There's a partner in my group, one of the senior partners in the firm, Anne-Marie Orgrove, who's a real leader in this area. Mm-hmm. As it's turned out, not necessarily completely by design, but our group predominantly has women. So that means that the people who are being progressed, there's a higher proportion of women and we sort of exceed the the firm's requirements on most levels there. In terms of my role as a practice group leader, when I'm sort of in that management team context, it's around calling out when I see unconscious bias going on. Mm. I think one of the classic things is the assertive man versus the aggressive woman. Yes. And you see that sometimes in management discussions and it's really important to call that out. And genderized language I don't think is necessarily one of the most important things. I mean, I, I've got a bugbear about it and quite a few years ago now there was... And so you're talking then about calling 
calling people out, which is not always the easiest thing to do. What are the behaviours that you sometimes find are difficult to call out, but you know they need to be? Look, some of those calling out things Mm. are really hard from time to time. When you're sitting in a room full of very senior people and to whom you respect are sort of using language, not really bad language, Mm. but sort of genderised responses like I was talking about before, that can be hard to call out. I think when you're dealing with people who you're close to, disciplining people when they've sort of crossed the boundary in a particular way, that can be very difficult. Now I'm surrounded by quite a good group of people, so fortunately that doesn't happen too often. And I guess what's really hard is, I think, this is probably the the thing I think is hardest. One of the problems about this issue is everyone naturally, I think, gravitates to people who are like them. And that's a really insidious problem in the gender area because we know we've got a history of predominantly men um, in pretty much most law firms still, uh, including bakers. So to change it, we have to try and get people to move away from what's comfortable or become comfortable with something else. Mm. So you have two problems. One, a very successful lawyer is coming up the ranks and they're like, I'll just use me. (laughs) If they're like me, maybe it's easier for me to say, well, he's going to be successful because he acts like I do. Maybe he has the same interest in sport. Maybe he came from the same school. There are a lot of little indicia that mean it's a comfortable relationship. And I think that it's important for men to sort of push a lot of those things aside and accept a broader range of indicia as indicating that someone can be successful and some of those will be comfortable and they will be like me but in other times you've got to try and separate out the things that actually truly mean that someone will or won't be successful and and also embrace that concept that I'm much better off if the, the team around me is not like me so it's I can do that in my little team calling it in a out in other people's teams can be incredibly hard. Telling someone, you promoted that person because they're like Mm. you, can be incredibly challenging. Very, very challenging. And I'd say even more challenging sometimes for the women to be the ones to to call it out. And so, Yeah. yeah, it's a hard one. So in terms of sexual harassment, it's obviously still a major issue for Australia's legal profession. The repercussions for the industry are vast, talent pipeline, legal actions. There's so many issues around it. How are we going to tackle this? Look, I think that right now, hopefully, we're at a bit of an inflection point. There have been quite a number of well-publicised cases here in Australia and around the world where there have been very bad behaviours that have come to light. They're probably just the tip of the iceberg, but at least people are beginning to talk about it a little bit more and seeing that there's action being taken. And I think that to really make significant inroads into this area it's important that firms commit to a zero tolerance Mm. policy. I think they have to make it easy and safe for women to report and women have to trust that the organisation will do something about it if they raise an issue. I think those are the kinds of things that we have to do. Mm, I completely agree. And still on that sort of sexual harassment issue, we often hear about men being confused now and uncertain following the the Me Too movement. There's a lot of talk about a backlash when it comes to Me Too. So, for example, I've had senior male members of the profession muse to me about the uncertainty of it all and that they now think twice about mentoring women, just as an example. What's your take on this? A couple of takes. It's an odd world in which we live Mm -hmm. that women who are being discriminated against are going to then be further discriminated against because 
senior members of the profession don't feel comfortable in doing what they absolutely must, which is mentor women, otherwise things are not going to change. At a fundamental level, I just don't believe that people can be that confused by it. I think that, particularly in the legal profession, for someone to claim that they don't really understand where the boundary is, what's right and what's wrong, I think is pretty clear. Behaviour is obviously unwanted if someone says no or they complain. If you can't trust yourself through mentoring someone and going having coffees with them to to coach them, etc., then there's something really fundamentally wrong with the way you're approaching it. I really struggle with people who say that. I think that those boundaries are pretty clear. I don't really believe people when they say they're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, I again, I agree completely. So let's finish on a positive note then. In terms of mentoring and sponsorship, have you got an example of where you feel you have been able to, to really positively impact a, a female lawyer in terms of, of mentoring or sponsoring them? Yeah, I mean, hopefully there's more than one example. Mm. Yeah, so there's a, a lawyer who worked with me for quite a while uh, who is currently in our London office and she'll be returning soon. One of the things we make sure of in our group, and I can't take sort of sole credit for this, is we make sure that when people are either on parental leave or where they're in another jurisdiction that we keep making sure that they progress as they go along. And then I've started to think carefully about, well, when she comes back, making sure that there's a role for her. Mm. There are some client relationships that she held quite strongly. I'll make sure that she gets those back. But equally, another sort of example I'm reasonably proud of is one of the lawyers who worked with me was one of the first men to take advantage of our parental leave policy. Excellent. So he was away for an extended period and now some of the work that he was doing when he left is still going, so I've made sure that it's gone back to him now. He's decided to sort of take a slightly different path, but still supporting someone like that is critical and making sure that when they return, there's not a sort of deficit in their development and their opportunities, probably more their opportunities. Andrew, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for your work championing women and advancing them in the legal profession. To all our listeners, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the Changemakers podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.